Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. Yesterday was January 28th, and today is the 29th, and I say that because yesterday was my 31st birthday. Paintball was absolutely incredible with the team, and uh, apparently if you don't have uh, like a, a pre-established private uh, party thing going on, they won't let you do just your team uh, like your employees versus you because that's what we wanted to do was boss versus everyone for at least one round So it basically ended up turning into boss versus the entire World of everyone who was at that paintball field versus Kevin so a little bit sore this morning morning <laughs> But I think it's a great way to start uh, 31 it was uh, it was pretty awesome. So uh, shout out to to the awesome team members yesterday It was super awesome and uh, it was it was great fun. So uh, today uh, we are, uh, well, this is the final Sunday before the Federal Reserve gets together and does their yip-yapping. We expect that uh, after January 31st uh, Employment Cost Index report, we're going to be getting a big set of updates from the Federal Reserve. And the big questions are circulating right now about how the Federal Reserve is going to reiterate or not iterate their prior summary of economic projections. Now that's the big deal right now, is paying attention to that SEP and what kind of reiteration we potentially get on that SEP or not. So if you are a Fed watcher, I am a big believer that you want to watch, uh-oh, what are they going to say about that? So there are a few things to look for uh, from the Fed this uh, upcoming Wednesday, which is February 1st. Obviously, you already know that the coupon code uh, expires tomorrow. That's January 30th. I can't believe January is already almost over. That's insane. Uh, but join that for lifetime access and course member live streams and lectures on building wealth either through real estate stocks. Elite Hustlers Group, which will have custom live streams probably starting next weekend uh, as well as the course member lives, which is super cool. So check that out, link down below. So catalyst for the Fed. Number one, uh, we're going to look at the SEP. So we'll pay attention to the SEP as number one. Number two, we want to see what their take is on transitioning from this idea of uh, how much they hike. Uh, that is, we already know or expect, I should say, they're going to drop to 25 BPs. But it, the question now is, uh, how long do they think they'll stick with 25s until they pause? So the first thing we want to hear from is the SEP. The second thing we want indicators are, are going to be any sign of a pause. Uh, and then, of course, the third thing, which I don't think we'll get anything of, would be uh, any kind of turn uh, for cuts. Uh, so uh, for this, let's go ahead and look at the summary of economic projections and, and try to understand what we've got and, and see what kind of uh, scenario do we think the Fed might respond with. So uh, the Federal Reserve indicated in our last summary of economic projections that economic growth potentially ended 2022 at just half of a percent of growth. That actually might make sense given that we did have a couple quarters of negative growth in uh, 2022. And that somewhat implies that you could have, uh, uh, you know, our actual recession in 2022. Uh, of course, most market indicators suggest, no, no, it's actually going to be 2023 when we'll have a shallow recession. 
Uh, the Fed thinks we actually could avoid a recession, but we'll get a lot closer than previously thought. Previously, they estimated in September that, that oh, 2023, we should end with GDP of around 1.2%. But they actually slowed that substantially to 0.5%. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to mark here it with a little green marker and point out which I think are going to be really important to see any kind of reiteration on from the Fed. Uh, what I'd like to see is potentially a comment from the Fed on GDP and whether or not they still stand by this half percent in 2023. Because if Jerome Powell suggests that, hey, since our last GDP forecast, things have actually improved for the economy, well, then on one hand, that could be good for avoiding a recession, but on the other hand, it could be bad for how long do they believe they have to continue with rate hikes. Remember, the Federal Reserve is projecting that interest rates are going to go from where they sit today, which is about 4.25%, to about 5.1%. Now, keep in mind that rate policy is made in increments of 25 basis points. So 5.1 could just be the average of basically 5 to 5 and a quarter percent, which is what Barclays is currently estimating, and many banks on Wall Street are currently estimating, that the Fed is going to raise rates three more times. So the expectation would be a 25 basis point hike in Feb, March, May, and a pause thereafter. That's the current projection. However, and again, the reason I want to hear from Jerome Powell on how his mindset would have changed if he had to do the summary of economic projections again, which he has done before in the past. For example, in, in our uh, uh, previous meetings, he's told us, oh, you know, if I had to do a summary of economic projections, uh, projection again today, I would have done XYZ differently. The most notable of this was in November when Jerome Powell suggested, hey, if I had to do the summary of economic projections again today instead of the last one we did in September, I'd be a little bit more aggressive. That was sort of the prelude to this summary of economic projections, which, which came out in December, came out December 14th. Now, what we want on uh, the next meeting, which is uh, starting uh, January 31st, and then we'll get the press conference on February 1st. What we want is any kind of indicators on how potentially Jerome Powell would have revised this. Uh, it's so, A, projection on GDP, I think, is critical, and B, the uh, projection on rates, I think, is critical. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at this point for Jerome Powell to say something like, hey, you know, if I had to go back and redo the summary of economic projections, maybe I'd revise GDP up slightly, but I'd leave the terminal rate projection roughly in line with the last report. That's what I would, I would think Jerome Powell is likely to say. I do not think this February 1st we're going to get any kind of indicator yet that uh, the Federal Reserve is going to soften how many hikes they give. And think about this, because it's kind of like we're at the candy store and mom and daddy are already buying us some candy and we just want more. They're already widely expected to drop to 25 BPs of hikes, right? This is already getting candy from mommy and daddy, from daddy pal. So we're already getting a nice treat. Now the question is, Okay, daddy pal, we got a treat, you know, like what are, what are the odds you're going to give us a treat going forward? And that's why I think we're going to be looking very closely at any kind of commentary around the summary of economic projections. So that is the first most important thing that 
personally I'm going to be looking for uh, in, uh, in in this next uh, Federal Reserve meeting. The second thing that I'm going to be looking for is uh, in any kind of indicator on a pause, uh, which again, I, I don't think that we're going to get, as well as any kind of indicators on potential cuts, two and three, which also I don't think we're going to get. But take a listen to this story. There's a story by Robert Heller. He was a former member of the Board of Governors at the Federal Reserve, and he wrote this piece in Barron's. Let's go ahead and take a look at this piece together because it's quite interesting. So he suggests that obviously inflation is the most important issue facing the economy today according to what people think. That's based on a survey by Gallup Polls. And Congress obviously gives the Fed the dual main mandate of stable prices and maximum employment. And that inflation, according to Milton Freeman, is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And so this author, though, makes the case that the Fed should actually stop hiking. Now, this is quite interesting. Let's read a little bit here. One might assume that controlling the quantity of money should be a key mission of the Fed, but that is no longer the case. Keep in mind that the M2 money supply has actually turned negative uh, in December. That's the first negative read we've had, I wanna say in over 20 years or nearly 20 years. Uh, so the money supply is, is absolutely tightening as we go through with quantitative tightening. It's also worth noting that pension funds are expected to be big buyers of bonds, not necessarily stocks. Now that's interesting because at the same time as you have quantitative tightening, what you're really doing is you're offloading bonds. And unless pension funds come in and start swooping up those bonds more, the Fed could break something because money is getting really, really tight. Uh, like that money supply is already tight, 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 like, uh, like the guy from Breaking Bad says. Anyway, uh, pension funds reportedly, by the way, on a little tangent here, are sitting on a trillion dollar surplus of available cash for a potential massive bond buying spree. Uh, there's a suggestion they may reallocate heavily to bonds slash de-risk. Uh, and when rates rise, it's worth noting that it's easier for pension funds to make the payments that they're obligated to make. Remember that a pension fund is really just a, hey, I'm an employee and I want a pension, you know, working for the railways or whatever. Uh, and I'm going to work hard in exchange. I'm going to pay into my pension every year. Y'all go invest the money and make sure you pay me for the rest of my life once I retire. Well, pension funds when interest rates go up, actually have an easier time making those commitments because they could just park their money in ultra-safe bonds and actually make the investment uh, rates of returns that they expected to make and uh, end up funding their pension liabilities. Right now, the average pension fund sits at 110% funded. That's the highest level in over two decades. And now there's an assumption that there could be a trillion-dollar surge in a bond buying, that would substantially more than offset the Federal Reserve's $80 billion a month of quantitative tightening. In fact, if we got a trillion dollar surge, that would represent to almost 12 months uh, or offset about 12 months of Federal Reserve quantitative tightening. That could actually end up leading bond prices to rally substantially and yields to plummet uh, if pension funds were to come out and start uh, basically yeeting money into the bond market. <laughs> it's entirely possible. That would actually then and serve as sort of a counterpoint to the idea that the Fed should pause because the Fed might look and go, whoa, y'all just eased financial conditions so much. Let's keep rates higher for longer. So there, there are things as usual going in both directions here. 
But it's worth paying attention to this idea that anyone talking about, oh, the Fed's gonna have to U-turn because they're doing quantitative tightening. Yeah, the pension fund's got plenty of money to fix that problem. <laughs> anyway, let's continue to see Robert Heller's thesis on potentially why the Fed might uh, uh, be destined to pause on the rate hikes. Again, that's sort of the title here. The Fed doesn't need more rate hikes to beat inflation. Uh, or at least that's what they're implying. So if you look at the FOMC statements published from each FOMC meeting for the last three years, uh, you will search in vain for the word money. It's not even mentioned a single time in all these years. That was not always true when Paul Volcker was in charge of the Fed. The Fed considered controlling and steering money supply to be the most important policy tool. During the 1990s, the velocity, the M2 money supply, increased as money market funds and other near-money substitutes were introduced. But this trend in the velocity of money was reversed in the years since the 2000s, and now monetary velocity is below what it was in the Volcker years. Okay, before we keep going, it's worth understanding a little bit about the velocity of money. I'll make this very simple. So, let's say you go uh, to a paintball store and uh, you go buy a box of paintballs, of PBs. So they sell you a box of PBs. I don't know, I can't recall how much they are, but they're probably at least 50 bucks. Uh, anyway, they sell you a box of 50 PBs, uh, or, or uh, 5,000 paintballs, or usually they come in 2,500s. They sell you 2,500 paintballs for 50 bucks. All right, great. So they get the 50 bucks, they take the $50, and what do they do with the $50? They pay their employees. What do their employees do? Well, they go buy Subway sandwiches. What do they do? They end up going to, you know, pay their rent. And what does uh, their landlord do? Well, their landlord invests it in Tesla stock and loses all their money. So that's just an example of how money over here can move through the economy multiple times. Money that is spent generally moves through the economy four to five times. So every time you spend a buck, it tends to move through the economy four to five times. That is different from somebody who eventually puts the money into a savings account or stock account. Money then only tends to move through the economy about one to two times, probably an average closer to about 1.4 times. So in other words, the velocity of money really dies when people invest. So if you wanna do the right thing for the economy, don't invest, just spend all your money. Keep that velocity of money going. If you want to do the right thing for yourself, don't spend money. Invest it. <laughs> uh, and if you want to go with with like a more neutral approach, uh, no, okay, never mind. I was going to make a joke. It's a bad idea. Never mind. Let's keep going. We 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 got we got to make sure to keep serious news joke free here. Although we are already talking about the Fed. Oh, sorry, I had to do it. While there are certain measures, okay, so now now we understand the velocity of money a little bit, and we know the velocity of money is plummeting. Let's go back over here. Uh, while there are certain measurement issues that could certainly be considered, it would be folly, it would be a mistake not to look at the money supply as a key determinant of inflationary pressures. But it seems the current, uh, but it seems to be the current policy stance of the Fed. Even casual inspection of graphs showing the growth rate of the money supply as measured by M2 and the inflation rate as reflected in the CPI reveals a correlation between money and prices that's still pretty strong. In other words, as the money supply greatly expanded during the stimulus era of 2021, certainly what ended up happening, oh wow, we had massive inflation. But what's now happening? Well, the money supply is shrinking. 
Here is a chart of CPI starting to fall over year over year. That's fine. Uh, and nowadays, the Fed is mainly focused on interest rates and implementing its monetary policy, says this former Fed governor. Uh, but that has not been a much easier task. Inflation soared from close to zero. Okay, whatever. So we do a little bit of history over here. After the Fed began to raise the Fed funds rate uh, in March of last year, inflation also started coming down, but still exceedingly high. Yes, yes. At the present, the real or inflation-corrected Fed funds rate is still negative, as the nominal Fed funds rate is lower than the current inflation rate. That's a simple way of basically saying, look, the Fed's Fed funds rate is a four to four and a quarter, and we have inflation that's in excess of six percent. That means we are negative when we consider inflation, but we expect eventually inflation to be below that level. As long as we continue on that trend, hey, maybe the Fed's doing the right thing. So the current policy debate within the Fed is whether to continue to increase the Fed's rate to continue to rein in inflation. The Federal Reserve rate would potentially have to go above the inflation rate to accomplish their objective ultimately. And by following the interest rate strategy, the Fed, however, neglects to look at the money supply, which has already sharply reduced according to the most recent annual growth statistics in actually declining in absolute terms. This is where I talked about the money supply has gone negative in December. However, the current monetary policy is already restrictive enough to ultimately defeat inflation because from a monetary point of view, we're already negative. Unfortunately though, according to this former Fed board member, all it will take is a year or a year and a half of patience and no further growth in the money supply to accomplish the objective. In other words, here's somebody who used to work at the Fed who says, look, there are two big ways you could look at what the Fed's job is. Way number one is hike rates. Way number two, like we used to do, is control the money supply. Well, if the money supply is already negative, then maybe y'all just need to be patient. This is really a lag argument, right? And it's a lag argument that the money supply going negative is already sufficiently restrictive enough to, bring, to basically stamp out inflation. And we have to be careful not to end up, uh, well, uh, with deflation, <laughs> which potentially could happen. Now, uh, some folks will look and say, well, Kevin, let's pull up a chart of the money supply. It's already way higher than what it was in the prior decade. And this is true. It exploded. It ballooned in 2020 and 2021. So how could we possibly say it's negative? Well, the way you say it's negative is you just look at it from a percent change from a year ago, and there you go. Now the chart is negative. See, it doesn't take much to change your perspective on data a little bit, but this doesn't change the fact that it's still, you know, the money supply is still substantially larger uh, than what we've previously had. And this is true. And this is where it's worth looking at uh, the velocity of money to consider, okay, well, if we look at the velocity of money, all that extra money that's out there, how has the velocity of money changed? In other words, are people spending it more or using that money? Is that money circulating more or less now? And if uh, there are a few measures you can look at, uh, let me give you just a very quick comparison over here. If we go back to the paintball stand example, the paintball stand example I gave you is more of the nominal money supply. This is generally actually what happens when people spend money. The velocity of M2 money supply is the green part, which I highlighted, which is the part where basically people save or invest, not the spend velocity.
Uh, but if we look at the velocity of the M2 money supply in respect of what's going on with, uh, uh, with, with, the, with that large increase, right? That large increase we saw in the savings and invested stock. Well, if we look at the velocity of that, it's actually come down substantially uh, from levels where we were in the last decade. And it's been on this longer term era of falling. And even though it's ticked up a bit recently, it's still substantially lower by the tune of about 20% lower than we ha when, where we have been. So really you have an author here in, in Bloomberg who used to work for the Fed saying, hey, hey, whoa, whoa. You know, we're, we're actually seeing a slowing in the money supply, in the economy, or the velocity of money. And maybe, just maybe, we don't need to uh, keep hiking. In other words, we should pause. Now, again, you might say, hey, but wait a minute, Kevin. That's of the M2 money supply. That's of the saved or invested money supply. What about the velocity of money of people who are spending? Yeah, well, don't worry. I have that chart as well. That chart is right here. And here you can see the velocity of money in 2010 was as high as eight times. Uh, and it fell to about six, to about five, to about 4.8 uh, before the pandemic, 5.2, 4.8 before the pandemic. And that number too has plummeted uh, quite well. If it, in fact, if you look at Q3 2022, it's at about 1.2. Uh, and that's relative to where we have been previously. And this is a symptom of, yes, everybody has a lot more capital than they did before the pandemic. But it's it's actually, even though spending is, is slightly, you know, growing uh, in nominal terms, it's negative in real terms, but people have so much more access to capital than they previously did. It's not all actually getting spent the way you think. And so here you have a Fed governor actually saying, we're good. We should pause and just be patient and inflation will plump. It's an argument. We'll see. Because the other thing that could happen is people could just start spending again if the Fed is too soft. And then what happens? Well, then you just explode inflation again. Continuing with the piece here, further tightening of monetary policy steering by the Federal Reserve's rate would increase the chance of recession in the foreseeable future. Together with the two quarters of negative growth already experienced in the first half of last year, this possible recession in the middle of this year would essentially uh, would be essentially a repeat performance of the early 1980s when the country also experienced a double dip recession. Oh, the warning of the double dip recession. You got to love it. The good news is the money supply growth is now close to zero and is already influencing the inflation rate. Given the typical lag of 12 to 18 months in monetary policy, we can expect inflation will be defeated towards the end of the year or by the beginning of 2024, just like Friedman would have predicted. The, and, and, and I mean, if we follow up based on, you know, data we reviewed yesterday, Procter & Gamble, United Airlines, Southwest Airlines, uh, you've got uh, uh, PG&E, well, that's Procter & Gamble, uh, Johnson & Johnson and 3M, they're all indicating this potential deflation coming towards the uh, second half of the year, right? The Fed will have to decide whether to hitch its star and reputation to an almost exclusive focus on interest rates, which would indicate a need for further tightening, or whether to adopt a forward-looking policy and trust in the future effects of the current money supply data. Such a policy stance would indicate no further tightening. So this is very interesting. 
because the Fed essentially has a choice, according to this former Fed governor who wrote this piece in, uh, in, in the Barron's report here. And he suggests the Fed has two choices. You could pause completely and let the lags work, or you could keep hiking and continue to look in the rearview mirror. So my opinion is the Fed is probably likely to continue to look in the rearview mirror until they break something. And, or, or inflation is so clearly down. So I don't think we're going to expect any kind of U-turn, but uh, anytime soon, obviously. But, but, but we might get some talk or some uh, more revisions into their policy statement about the lags. And in an interesting way, if the Fed comes out with a 25 BP hike, which is expected, and talks a little bit more about how they're watching the lags of monetary policy, could be enough to set a full uh, a bull market uh, into motion. And I think the Fed realizes that, so they're going to be cautious about that. But then again, they're also willing to create a bull market if it means no recession, right? The Fed wants to be right. And if all they have to do is induce a little bit of a bull market and not like a V-shaped recovery, Larry Kudlow inflationary bull market, I think they're willing to do that. So I, I'm not, I would not be surprised to see the Fed be okay with additional stock market rallying. Because in a weird way, stock market rallying while real estate is still falling could be sufficiently restrictive to keep inflation coming down. It's an interesting idea. Obviously, we'll see what's, what happens. But uh, it, in my opinion, those are going to be things that I'm looking for in regards to what the Fed is up to. All right. That's some Fed speak there for you. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about, uh, let's, do, let's look at some commentary here. Kevin, what do you think about EU claiming that recession will not happen? Yeah, this is true. You've got France and Germany saying we're going to avoid a recession. Uh, it's, it's entirely possible. Uh, jobs can't be cut so easily. I fear that we can be the grim reaper. I'm not sure what you mean with that second part here. But I think it's, it's worth remembering that we do not need to destroy the jobs market to end uh, this, this inflationary crisis. If inflation starts disappearing, you don't need to kill jobs. If anything, you want to prevent so many layoffs and people leaving the, you know, uh, and, and people losing their jobs. So you, you potentially have to soften sooner to prevent that pain. Remember what Jerome Powell also told us. He told us, look, I don't want to create pain. Even though I know I can tighten and if I need to, I could just turn the printer back on. I'm paraphrasing, but this is roughly what he said. He's like, that can come with tremendous human hardship, and I don't want to cause that. So keep that in mind, too. Like, he doesn't want that much pain. Just enough to get rid of inflation. He's still got a heart. I believe in the man. <laughs> anyway. Uh, how is this guy going every single day, weekend included? Coffee, step bro. Coffee in the morning. Coffee, 5 a.m. Something else, 5 p.m. It's a very simple cycle. <laughs> the employees are so awesome. Uh, yesterday, um, I mean, shout out to everyone. Michael, Kincaid, Nick, Mark. Uh, <laughs> and, and then it gets funny with names. Christian, Tristan. Tristan, McKay, <laughs> Joe, 
Y'all are awesome. Bob, Kathy, y'all rock. Uh, Y'all rock. Mikey, thanks for being here as well. It's it's fun. Uh, Like, uh, yesterday, even Sam, thank you for for helping us yesterday. Boy, yesterday freaking rocked. Uh, I mean, what a what, what a fun day! It's it's nice to be surrounded by by so many great employees. Uh, four folks from the construction team have been here through through everything uh, uh, over the last few years. And when I say everything, I mean like a lot of different shifts in terms of where are we going? Okay, what are we gonna do? Which direction are we going? And uh, we cannot be more excited to start working on uh, on House Hack uh, this year. So uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a blast. Uh, but uh, there's nothing like uh, uh, going paintball and getting shot by your team and then, uh, and then hanging out in the spa after that. <laughs> we get this massive spa so we don't have to be too close together. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, maybe, I, maybe I'm still contributing to inflation. Sorry about that. But the spa is pretty dope. Uh, my dad came over yesterday. He's like, oh, I was in my spa earlier. And he comes over and he's like, oh, my gosh, this is a huge spa. <laughs> it's great. Uh, what do you think of Sleepy Powell? What does that even mean? Uh, tips on playing SoFi before earnings? You know, I don't. I generally don't play earnings. I'm a little bit too much of a baby. I'm a little bit more of a Buffett-esque in that style. Um, let's look at what the implied volatility is. I'm not optimistic about... Uh, let me. Yeah, I'll put it this way. I'm not optimistic. I think it's very difficult for you to continue to gain... Uh, um, signups in this sort of environment and the only way they're really able to do so is by paying a higher interest rate but that's going to plummet their net interest revenue you know I'd probably if I had to lean in a direction I'd probably be more short than I'd be long but that is very dangerous because if the market rallies broadly any negativity would be limited uh, right so you have an implied volatility of 13.8% that's insane that's pretty high. Uh, Kevin will be buying a $40 million house in the Hollywood Hills before long. I don't think I could live in Hollywood, honestly. I really like uh, where I live. I think it's it's great. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really cool. Currently buying Luna Classic Dips. Oh, my God. Why? I really hope you're doing that with only a small portion of your net worth. Do you rent out your net jet? Do you rent out your jet when you don't use it? No way. Dude, nobody gets to use my jet. Only Kevin gets to use his jet. Nicole Harris, thanks for being a YouTube member now. Will you start trading crypto again? Uh, yeah, I, I would trade it, uh, but I, I would not hold uh, crypto. If we get deflationary with the administration, could we stimulate the economy by giving stimulus to low-wage workers who will spend it? Um, and then tighten again. Well, I think I think there there are two differences there. There's There's... Monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus. You're talking about fiscal stimulus, stimmy checks. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. Don't get me wrong. I would love to cover stimmy checks uh, because I honestly, it, it was very enjoyable. I loved being able to make videos going, go here and get free money. <laughs> you know, that was really enjoyable. But I don't think it's going to happen specifically because of the uh, Republican Congress that we have. Uh, eh, that is the house. There's no way. There's no way stimmy checks are coming. Uh, I, I'm, I, I, I'd love to give hope on it, but I think it would be misplaced. Very misplaced. 
Oil prices going to jump next week due to strikes in Iran. All right, let's go ahead and take a look at Iran a little. Let's see what's going on over there. Let's see what you got, Steve. Steve is a... We, uh, I, I'm starting a petition for Steve to... Uh, oh, Nicole Harris here says, Had to renew my membership. Kevin's dedication. Praise. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Nicole. Nicole is shouting out uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin stocks, and Floki in you, by the way. Well, welcome aboard, Nicole. Uh, all right. Uh, and you know what they say. Girl stands for, right? Guy in real life. Anyway. Anyway, <laughs> let's uh, let's see what we got over here. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, I, I saw some news about this yesterday. Actually, it was it was showing up on our uh, Refinitiv terminal. We love Refinitiv, by the way. Shout out to Refinitiv. Bloomberg, I'll reserve commentary on. Uh, but Refinitiv Reuters, you guys are really good on the minute by minute news. So I saw the. Uh, last news come across the terminal yesterday, but but we weren't really in the right state of mind to read it <laughs> much more than the headline. All right, so here's what happened in Iran yesterday. A drone attack caused a heavy explosion at the Defense Ministry Ammunition Depot in central Iran, state TV said, resulting in a top diplomatic official warning about escalating tensions in the Persian Gulf. Now, obviously, the question here is, who launched the attack? The site, located in Isfahan province, was targeted by suicide drones at 11 p.m. local time and caused minor damage to the ceiling of a structure inside the facility, a deputy provincial governor uh, said. A drone was shot down by air, fence, air defense uh, systems. Oh, one drone. Okay, so, so multiple drones were launched. One of them caused minor damage at a facility. Another one was shot down. I'm actually surprised that drones were capable of being shot down at 11 p.m. I know that sounds silly. Like, come on, they've got air defenses that operate 24-7. I'm just thinking, like, that's probably a good time to do that. I mean, most people probably aren't working around that time. And, and you probably have more of a bare-bones staff on defense. So uh, good for them, actually, on, on their defense. Now I'm sure they're going to beef that up even more. A video published by the state-run Nower News shows a loud blast at a low-level building near a busy road, causing a burst of flames and sparks. The state-run Republic News Agency also released footage showing police cars and fire trucks at the entrance. It is not known who is behind the strike. There's no official statement casting blame, although one finger pointed at Israel for similar incidents in the past. I don't know about that. Uh, coming after the Israeli shootings, uh, terrible attacks in Jerusalem, by the way, uh, apparently uh, pal a couple Palestinian shooters uh, taking the lives of at least nine individuals in Jerusalem. Responding to an event, the UAE said in a tweet that the blast is not in the interest of the region or furthering the region. There is no alternative to dialogue. Uh, yeah, well, that has not been true for the Middle East, unfortunately. Iran blamed Israel for the 2021 attack on a key nuclear enrichment site. Well, that's because Israel is deathly afraid of nuclear enrichment, uh, given that uh, they're surrounded by uh, countries that aren't big fans of Israel. Authorities also said they foiled a plot by Israel's Mossad spy agency in July to set off explosives at unspecified sen sensitive centers 
uh, in a similar area. Saturday's strike comes amid continued Western condemnation of Iran's supply of military drones to Russia. Oh, yeah, that's another big thing, by the way. Iran is just pumping out military weapons to Russia. So, nice little profit center for them. Uh, but, you know, that's the, that's the way the world works. So, I, I don't know, Steve, what, why, why are we thinking this is going to really hit oil futures here? Uh, so, that's, that's the drone strike. Mm -hmm. I'll go look at oil, baby. Oil. We'll go see what's going on with oil. How about that? Apparently five different attacks. Oh, yeah. Let's see here. Russia can't replace the energy market. Oil ends with weekly losses on resistance and key level. Okay. Mm. No. There's not that terribly much news in Iran on oil. Hmm. You know what we could do? is, uh, let's do a little bit of a look at uh, some foreign affairs sites, and we'll see what we can find. And then there are a bunch of you talking about Bitcoin moving, so we'll take a brief look at that as well. Oh, Bitcoin, it always likes to move. Yeah, it actually is. Uh, so Bitcoin, at the time of this recording, about 5 a.m. California time, has come off within just uh, basically exactly since I started live streaming, it started running. So uh, feel free to send me dividends. The best way to do that is buy one of the programs on Building Your Wealth, link down below. The content is phenomenal. More content is coming. And uh, the course member live streams are excellent as well for fundamental analysis and Q&A. However, it is now uh, lifting off from a level of about 23.3 where we had been sitting for a few hours. It's now lifting off to about 23.6. And this recent lift off here really brings us higher than the uh, than the 21.3 level we've been sitting at for the beginning part of the third week of January. And now we're really trending off of that 22 to 23 run. That is absolutely sending some optimistic signals to, uh, to, to the risk market. <laughs> Remember that when Bitcoin runs, it usually excites the stock market. Uh, it, people think of it as a, a substantially better futures market indicator than uh, than the actual futures market. So, all right, let's see here. Foreign affairs, let's see what we got. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of my favorite websites, is foreignaffairs.com. They're great. Let's see what we have about oil at foreign affairs. Nothing. Yeah, I got nothing even on the first page at Foreign Affairs on oil right now. So I, I don't I don't know how much fear there is right now. Yeah, Lucid had one heck of an incredible rally last week. In case you you, you missed out what happened with Lucid, Lucid uh, had basically pure rumors, just complete speculation, run that maybe the Saudi private investment fund would would buy out the rest of Lucid. This is, it's very stupid for the stock to run on that because nobody knows at what price or if even that is true. In my opinion, it would be very easy for investors in Lucid to create this rumor, knowing full well it would create a, sh uh, a short-term meme rally. The stock ran about 100%. And then after it ran about 100%, I'm looking at it and I'm like, I'm tempted to short this. 
Uh, the darn sucker just plummets, and now and then it still ended up about 40%, but it plummets. Because when there are no details or confirmations of these rumors, they really mean nothing. Really mean nothing. And I think that is very important to pay attention to. You do not have news if you do not know what is going to happen at it. It's not, it is not something worth betting on. Uh, I'm not a big fan of speculating that. So, pretty anti uh, running into Lucid right now. I think they need to continue to raise money. Although they did, they did already raise 1.5 billion dollars. They did a good job of that. Yeah, even the Economist isn't even talking about oil right now. The Economist find them to be pretty good, although they do lean pretty far left. Uh, although they try to be as central as possible. They, they're just super anti-Trump. You, you, you can't, you basically almost can't read a, an Economist article without, and this is not to be confused with all economists. This is just to say the Economist. But anyway, you, you, you pretty much can't get through the Economist without getting a single slam on Trump. Right, that might be a little extreme, but anyway, what do we got over here? Here's a piece from The Economist on the world's econ uh, the world economy's inflation problem is easing. All right, Economist, let's see what you have about the world's inflation problem easing. Investors have several reasons to be cheerful about the world economy. In America, inflation is tumbling, raising hopes of a soft landing. And China's economy is freed of its COVID zero policy. Markets are joyous. American stocks have risen 5% since the start of the year. Hey, see, Steve? See, commodity, Steve? There's there's no fear about oil here yet. Alas, it's too soon to declare an end to the world's problems. In America, consumer prices dipped below 2% this year, uh, or may dip uh, on an annualized basis below 2% thanks to cheaper energy and goods. Yet price growth is plunging, so too is GDP growth. Retail sales and industrial production fell in December, and leading indicators point to a sharp downturn. Despite headline-grabbing layoffs by big tech firms, America's unemployment rate remains just 3.5%. Annual wage growth has fallen by some measures, but remains around 5%. As Walmart says, they're going to raise wages. Re remember, I've kind of already debunked the Walmart lag argument. Uh, in other words, I think that this or that Walmart will create inflation with his wages. I personally believe it won't. I think it, this is a lag. It's well below average wage anyway, and uh, Walmart basically had to wait to raise wages because, well, they were uh, losing money. I much prefer to see what Chipotle is doing. And even though they're hiring, they're seeing it easier to keep their employees. Retention is at all-time highs, highest seen at company history, and it's becoming substantially easier to hire people. That's a great sign that there's plenty of supply for people right now. Anyway, some policymakers hope that companies whose profits surged in 2021 can absorb rapid wage growth without prices having to rise further. Yet by last autumn, higher profit margins accounted for only an eighth of the pandemic-era inflation. Given that Wall Street is expecting disappointing earnings for the fourth quarter, this suggests firms will raise prices in line with their labor costs. Markets expect the Fed to start cutting within a year as growth slows, but if the Fed is serious about reducing inflation to 2% and keeping it there, it will need to keep rates high until wage growth cools, even if that brings about a recession. That is true. If, if inflationary numbers come in bad, they, they will continue to hike even in the face of a recession, uh, which that's the scary part. Should America face a downturn, it's likely to take Europe with it. Despite falling energy prices, the Eurozone has an underlying inflation problem. Christine Lagarde, head of the ECB, has warned that interest rates will have to rise significantly 
contrary to dovish expectations of investors. Do keep in mind that the Fed is calling BS on the Fed because of the leading inflationary data. If uh, And the Fed has to be very careful not to paint the picture that everything's fine. Because if, if, ever, if they paint the picture that everything is fine, markets are just going to take off so fast. Mm. Massive layoffs at Phillips. Any thoughts? No, I don't have many thoughts, but that's quite interesting. Starbucks has the best benefits, says the chat here. McDonald's going to accept Doge. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is just like, you, you realize it's just like free marketing, right? Uh, it doesn't really mean too much. <laughs> it, it's just free marketing. Once they start accepting crypto, it's like, oh, yeah, let's get all the kids and their crypto coming over. It's a great idea. Don't get me wrong. And, and it gives more uh, clout to blockchain as well. So it's win-win. It's win for McDonald's because it's like free advertising. It's win for blockchain because more people are using it. So I think it's great. But in, in the short term, it's just a ploy. Anyway, a stronger dollar, which is likely if the Fed keeps raising rates, nah, the dollar's going to keep going down. Investors take fright at the consequences, would rise import, raise imported inflation and make the ECB's job even harder still. Yeah, it'll come down. The end of COVID zero in China has lowered the chance that supply chains will gum up. However, the rebound is not unalloyed. What the heck? Its rebound is not an unalloyed good for the rest of the world, which is an inflationary problem. Right, because spending from China might come out. Yeah, but we've also already debunked that, the economists. We know they've got uh, 500 bucks to every $6,000 we had over here in America from inflationary spend. So, I don't know. The economists, y'all could have done better. That, that was a little boring. Yes, yes, we know. The inflation problem is easing. We got it. But... You know, nobody here is complaining about oil. The, I think the only people who have been complaining about oil have been uh, hedge funds who are trying to trade oil, and they're trying to force force oil up at, at any by any possible means that they can do so. Uh, this I continue to get all these bets that oil is going to go to a hundred bucks, and maybe it is, but I think it'd be so short term because by then they're just all going to dump. Uh, let me see if I can get some oil insights. Here's one from Marex, which provides oil insights. We'll pull this up. Let's see what you got. Let's see what Marex says about your oil. All right, here we go. Oil markets. Many traders would agree, sometimes it's not data that's important, but rather price reaction to data. We believe this is the case with oil prices recently. Okay, so trade trading, basically. Looking at U.S. inventory statistics, crude oil stocks have been built or have built by an incredible 27 million barrels over the past two reports. Yet oil prices have rallied more than 10% over the same time frame as a classic case of sell the rumor, buy the fact. Wait, so oil stock up, yet oil price, right. So these are contrarian indicators of each other. Uh, again, suggesting maybe a trade. But let's see what they're saying. That's just my thesis. They could have a different opinion. Let's see. As for the sharp rise in crude inventories, it's not as if oil fundamentals have shifted. Okay, so so no, no shift in fundamentals, but rather the result of extreme cold weather that has ravaged the U.S. energy corridor in late December. The cold forced major uh, U.S. refineries to shut down due to operational issues related to freezing temperatures. Additionally, at the end of the tax year, on inventory in Texas and Louisiana caused oil imports to come onshore in early January. So, despite 
what seems to be very bearish data points, the oil market appears to be focused on China's abrupt reopening and improving macro backdrop as opposed to backward-looking inventory that was impacted by weather. In fact, spot Brent is now trading in the mid-high 80s, mid to high 80s, above moving average. This is true. Last few days, it has been moving up. The oil rally has coincided with notable increases in future open interest and managed money buying. This sounds like hedge fund and, and really institutional trading that oil is going to 100. The combined aggregate futures, open interest for Brent, climbed uh, plus 440MB since the start of the year, while net money managed position also increased plus 6.8 since last Tuesday, the latest reporting period for the Commodity Futures Trading Commission positioning data. About half of the net buying has come from short covering due to a big shift in momentum in the past two weeks. Okay, a lot of this so far just sounds like trading. This is what this is kind of what I started off with, right? Like looking into these reports, I, I just see trading. I don't see fundamental reasons for the for oil spikes yet. And I don't think China is good enough of a reason. Last week, we discussed momentum traders, how their herd like behavior can impact oil prices at times. Okay, so far, this is pretty consistent. I am looking for things that are not just trying to echo chamber Kevin's opinion. So I'm, I'm more than willing to be wrong. I'm just not finding them yet. Today, we want to expand on the topic while discussing the impact the war in Ukraine has on the momentum factor. To reiterate our point from last week, momentum is very simple and straightforward trading strategy, a, a simple trading strategy. Buy commodity or assets with positive returns and selling those with negative returns over a predefined period of time. Yeah, this is what every institution did in 2020. Growth stocks go down, no problem. Short all growth stocks. It's a very simple tactical trade far removed from fundamentals. This is why I've been buying them like crazy, because the fundamentals are phenomenal. But anyway, for example, one-year momentum signal trends uh, to a popular long-term indicator that measures of role-adjusted return over the past year. Given that we are dealing with historical prices, it is possible to look at price development of the prior year to formulate a roadmap. Blah, 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 blah. With that in mind, we are all aware of how erratic oil prices were last year, in particular in the early stages of the Russian invasion. In fact, prices uh, on Brent spiked to about 135. Huge spike made for an increasingly high bar with respect to momentum signals. Fine, whatever. Thinking ahead. All right, let's let's try to get their conclusion here. So thinking ahead, oil prices are now higher on the year after a very sharp decline the first week of January, and despite some sizable U.S. inventory builds, open interest has increased. Again, suggesting trading. So far, there's very little in the way of commodity index inflows this year. However, one would assume long-only investor dollars are likely chasing oil prices given the past two years of stellar returns. This group of institutional investors should gain more influence as the war-inspired vol volatility begins to filter out of risk models. This should become more apparent in the second half of 2023. Fundamentally, all eyes remain on Chinese reopening and the potential demand implications. Uh, let's see. This supports the notion that China will need record oil imports this year to meet refining demand. In addition, we believe the U.S. will also increase its U.S. imports this year to fill the void left by the cessation of strategic uh, uh, petroleum reserves. Fine. That's it. Okay, that was a little boring. They didn't actually tell us too terribly much there. They're basically like, look, there's a lot of trading going on, and we have no damn idea what's going to happen with demand in China. That's basically what they said, which was kind of our thesis going into it. 
All right. Well, that's that's not too entertaining. Okay. Hold on a second here. Now this this could be entertaining. What is this? Alright. Hold on. We're going to member only chat. There are plenty of folks here now, so we'll do member only chat. But I'd like to point this one out here. Three Pharaohs Tower says Walmart must stop theft and making employees to supporting with ignorance of crime, shoplifting is rebellion and insurrection. Walmart workers demand paid hazard pay and sue Walmart for dangerous work environment. Good Lord. You know whose job it is to make sure that there's no crime? It's the government's job. That's their job. The government is responsible for law and order. And when there's crime, it's the government that's failing. Yes, businesses should have security. But now the, you, you allege that all Walmart workers who barely provide value uh, on, on, the, on the retail floor level above what they're being paid should also receive hazard pay means that your jobs are going to get automated way sooner than you think. This is the last thing you should be demanding because soon you'll just be replaced by robots on the floor. Now, I'm saying that because I'm, I'm hoping, I'm not trying to offend anybody working in retail because I think retail is a great way to start working. It's a great way to make some extra money. It's 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 a great way to, it, it's very hard work. It's very, very hard work. I worked retail. Uh, I worked uh, at folding clothes in retail, worked at Hollister. I worked at Jamba Juice. I worked in the hospitality business. I've, I've done the jobs. I worked for seven bucks an hour, okay? I've been in the jobs. Eventually robots will replace these jobs. And the more ludicrous Arguments there are like, yes, demand, we demand hazard pay because people steal. In other words, because the government is failing, we want our jobs automated sooner. You kind of forget how capitalism works in America. The companies would rather buy a $35,000 robotic arm than they would employ somebody working for minimum wage, which probably costs about $35,000. In other words, they could have a free robotic arm for every employee every year. So you have to be really careful with all these claims that, oh, retail workers are entitled to more money. Don't get me wrong. It's hard work. But if you want to get paid more money, you have to figure out how to provide more value to the world, to the economy. And 17 bucks an hour is already pretty dang awesome for Walmart retail work uh, on the floor level. Maybe an unpopular opinion, but from a capitalistic point of view, in the long term, Milk it as long as you can and use it to get, you know, to, to, to elevate yourself to that next level of income. Because eventually those jobs won't exist anymore. Eventually, look, I'll give you an example, okay? Because again, maybe it's insensitive and people are going to be like, Ugh, Kevin hates poor people. That's what somebody's going to try to twist this into. Whatever. I went to uh, Munich and uh, at... Um, about 11 p.m. in Germany, maybe it was a little earlier, it might have been 9 p.m. 2100 hours! The Uhrzeit is 21! Anyway, I went to this pharmacy and uh, I, uh, I requested a specific drug uh, for Lauren. And uh, they said, all right, sure. 
that'll be three euros. I'm like, are you kidding me? Three euros? This would cost $40 in America. They're like, yeah, no, this ain't America. This is not America. This is, this is less money here. We have better healthcare system. You take it, you pay three euros, you get it. You don't like it, you go. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I'll, I'll give you your three euros. You take Apple Pay, it's like, yes. <laughs> like, All right, great. So I pay with Apple Pay. Probably got my foreign transaction fee. No, I'm pretty sure I used a card that didn't have those. But anyway, I paid my three euros. And he's standing there smiling. And I'm like, are you going to go get it? And he doesn't say anything. And I hear this rumbling behind him. And I'm like, like it's, it's, we're having like the staring standoff. Like I paid and he's not going to get the drug. And I'm like, dude, like go, go get the medicine. And he's just staring at me, smiling at me. And this rumbling's going on. And all of a sudden, this, this like drawer boop, plops open. And the medicine falls out. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, I didn't just ask for Advil. I asked for something really specific. And he's like, we have robot with 3,000 different medications back there. I just pushed a button on computer and it comes out. I'm like, oh, God. People are going to be getting unemployed soon. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's coming. Robots are coming to take over the world. Uh, and, and robots, yeah, <laughs> Nick M. Power here says, the robotic arm basically is not going to cause problems like suing their employer for hazard pay because the government is failing at regulating the world and people are going into stores and stealing stuff. That's, look, people stealing stuff in San Francisco is an example of a failed government. And you should look no further than the individuals with the names London Breed and Gavin Newsom for why we have horrible crime problems in California. And if there's anything to put the nail in that coffin, let's just su suggest that Gavin Newsom thinks your constitutional rights are a suicide pact. His words, not mine. <sighs> All right, what else are we going to talk about? Robotic arm story. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, robots rarely get tired and, and rarely, basically rarely need maintenance too. That's true. What do you think about the simulation theory? <laughs> It'd be a little uh, weird. I, I, I don't... I don't think we are, but it would be quite ironic. And you know, as Elon Musk says, uh, the most ironic outcome is, is usually the most true. Other governments, okay, yeah, this is a medical example here. Cytrix says, well, other governments negotiate on behalf of their citizens to drive down prices. The US only recently allowed for this and some drugs, on some drugs for some people. You mean to tell me that big pharma keeps prices artificially high in America? <laughs> Obviously. But yes, thank you for that. All right. Let's see here. What else do we have? Let's see what Bloomberg has for us. Fed's set to shrink rate hikes again as inflation slows. Yes, good. Sam Bankman-Fried denies U.S. witnessing tampering claim. Witness tampering claim. Apparently, he's like texting people trying to get back 
on like their in their good graces. And these are people who used to work for or with FTX. And it's kind of remarkable because people are suggesting that he's basically trying to butter people up because when it's time for them to testify against him, he's hoping that they'll be friendly to him and testimony against him and basically argue that everything was good. I was a good person. Meanwhile, we know he's a total fraud and a total scam and a total manipulator who tricked everybody who was working with him, uh, with the exception of the people on the inside. I mean, the fraud is so terrible. The FTSE, the UK market is close to piercing a higher watermark uh, that capped the FTSE 100 since 2018. And technically impressive as it is, we continue to believe the index may underwhelm versus Pierce this year. Mm, for Bloomberg, we'll see. Market rally in Bloomberg. Medicine shop in Daytona years ago, and they had automated counters then. Oh, that's awesome. My mom owned a medicine shop in Daytona. That's so cool. I, that was the first time I'd ever seen one. What if robots already took over, crypto being the way to extract money out of people and use it to continue to develop itself? <laughs> yes, the computers are, are uh, what is it called? Sentient? I think that's the phrase. The computers have become sentient. That's, that's when they start having a brain themselves. And they're like, hmm, humans are losers. So let's take advantage of them. <laughs> Thank you for that $5, Mike. Tom Baker wants to remind you about the expiring coupon code tomorrow. 11.59 p.m. The final coupon code will expire January 30th. Join the programs on building your wealth and get lifetime access to them. Tom Baker, these jobs are held by low-paid workers, which will cause more unemployment and crime. What will unions do about this? Yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily so much what will unions do about it. I think it's the job of government to provide proper, a proper educated workforce, a properly educated workforce. And unfortunately, the government is terrible at educating its workers uh, for actual jobs. Consider how many people can actually get a job coming out of high school. It's even hard to get a job at McDonald's now just coming out of high school. Like, you got to have some skills. Uh, now that is loosening a little bit. It's becoming a little bit easier again because of the economy. But, uh, you know, it is the job of our school system to provide education for people. It, it is entirely the job of the government to educate the workforce and the labor force. And individuals deserve to be educated in typing, programming, finance, accounting, uh, real business development skills. They should be learning these in high school. In addition, they should also be learning trades. How to be a real estate agent, how to be an electrician, a plumber, or a carpenter, everything. That does not happen in schools. In fact, what are most schools doing in California? Oh, we don't have money to do shop class anymore. So they, they cut these programs. It's ridiculous. The government is absolutely failing at educating the workforce. It's embarrassing. Especially, and California is the worst. We don't have the workforce to sustain automation. Every industry sector is freezing hiring, except for technology positions. Uh, the workforce needs engineers and developers. Yeah, but the, the problem is, you know, look at Twitter, for example. Twitter was supposed to die when half of its employees were let go. More than half of its employees were let go. Twitter's operating just fine with a fraction of the people. Open AI is changing the world of research 
with a bare bones workforce. And that's because a single engineer can now create so much more value on a per person basis than hundreds of engineers previously. You're shrinking the need for so many people. Eventually that will lead to probably universal basic income of, you know, you will own nothing and be happy sort of. Uh, that, that is probably the ultimate destination. I don't know if we'll get there in the next 20 or 30 years, but it'll certainly trend in that direction, especially as, as automation becomes more common. Even as an engineer developer, it is difficult to find new positions that pay more. A lot of devs are getting chopped. Yeah, and that, that's likely because we are going into a recessionary environment, right? Do you have a course that teaches option traders for beginning to master style? Uh, I would say for beginning to moderate, but not to master style yet. I would like to do that. Uh, maybe, maybe that's something we can plan for 2023. If we do, it would be built into the stocks and psychology of money group. Automation growth is exponential. Futbucker says, a sad reality is that education teaches kids to continue useless, to be useless and unable to think slash fend for themselves. Uh, public schools are just a babysitter, says ACBNB. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, the lack of skills that we get coming out of high school, this this is true. Uh, on another hand, or another another argument that individuals will make is that, well... You know, you learn algebra and geometry and stuff like that to think in a different way, to try to expand your mind and the ability to think in a different way. But unfortunately, most people can coast through high school not even actually getting to the upper echelons of math to where they're barely getting through algebra one and then they're graduating. And I mean, algebra one is like bare minimum. That's not even like thinking more. I think once you get into calculus, which I feel like most people don't end up actually taking, but once you get into calculus, that's when you actually start thinking differently. You start wiring your brain in a way that's like, wow, hmm, never thought about calculating the area of the slice of an apple before, right? And then, and then how to turn that into a formula. It's actually fascinating. Like, I, I was very interested in it. I wasn't very good at it, but I was very interested at it. Um, but, but yeah, you know, this is, this is where I think it's important to move over to uh, more technical-based training because not enough people actually get to the advanced levels of of uh, education to where education would actually rewire your brain to, to, again, make you think for yourself. Mercedes, EV sales mix target by 2025 is admirable, 50%. Yeah, right. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, 20% global BEV mix estimate for 2025. Yeah, okay. So in other words, Bloomberg thinks that Mercedes is going to get to about 20% battery electric vehicle and Mercedes is trying to get to 50%. They only got to 16% in 2022 amid semiconductor shortages and rising battery costs. The new EQE SUV is a potential catalyst along with a strategic update in 2022. Hmm, EQE. I'm always fascinated by uh, what Legacy Auto is up to. The EQE is Mercedes' all-electric sedan. Let's see if it's even possible to buy right now. Oh, look at that. A 0 to 60, 6.2 second acceleration. I mean, that's embarrassing. For, for the EV world, that's embarrassing. Uh, oh, I like the design, though. Looks nice. 
Whoever designed it, good job. Dual digital displays. Okay, well, I don't know. The whole thing isn't loading. But can I, can I build one? Can I buy one? Let's see. Let's see how much this sucker sells for. The Mercedes EQE. No? I can't, I can't build it? All right. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I don't know. Who knows when Mercedes will actually uh, get with the program. Uh, well, yesterday, we were talking a lot about their full self-driving program. Public school is child abuse. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you, Junebug, for $4 super sticker. All right, let's see what is new. What, what is Zero Hedge talking about today? They usually have some good news for us. So let's see. What's, what's going on over here? Pfizer responds. Oh, really? This will be interesting. <laughs> this will be very interesting. All right, here we go. Pfizer responds. Pfizer, late January 28th, responded to comments from a director at the company about exploring ways to mutate the COVID-19 virus as a method to preemptively develop its vaccines. Oh, I am very fascinated to see this response. They have a lengthy written statement. In, an on, in the ongoing development of Pfizer Bio, the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine, this is a partnership between companies, remember that. You have Pfizer, an American company, and the BioNTech, which is a German company. Pfizer has not conducted gain-of-function or directed evolution research. Pfizer said in a lengthy written, uh, written statement days after inquiries from the Epoch Times and other outlooks, outlets. Now, that's actually very interesting because yesterday I made a video, uh, actually in our, in our live stream yesterday morning, uh, before the statement uh, was, was released, I talked about the difference between genetic engineering and gain of function. I'll give a very brief description here, and I think that's very important. And in the name of science, dare I say that, because now saying the word science is political, which is just stupid. Uh, but in the name of science, it, it is worth everybody, and I think this is not political, I think we can all agree, there are substantial differences between genetic engineering, uh, whether that is in the old school method of like, cross-breeding plants, so you're only getting seedless watermelons, right? Uh, and the genetic engineering that, for example, potentially could, this is more advanced, remove asthma from people's DNA. That's like genomic sequencing. We sequence, and then we potentially use like CRISPR technology to then gene edit. Uh, that is gene editing, where we could actually remove bad from, from uh, human bodies or animal bodies or whatever. Still well into the future, I think gene editing for that to get adopted by all of the DNA in your body, I think, is, is uh, far-fetched and, and still quite a ways away, and we don't know all of the implications of messing with DNA. It could be a really bad idea, or it could lead to nothing. Gain of function is when you actually make something more dangerous, right? And, and that, I think, is not the intention, but it could be a byproduct of genetic engineering, where you potentially take, dare I say, a bat that has a virus and then you manipulate it and then you, oh crap, we accidentally, or on purpose, I don't know, turned it into a virus that could infect humans. Now the, uh, <laughs> the okay, now this is the tinfoil hat, okay? I'm, I'm gonna put the tinfoil hat on, okay? Tinfoil hat, if we could find a virus that we could manufacture and it could be very viral, which means it spreads really fast, we could make lots of money selling vaccine. 
That is the tinfoil hat version of gain-of-function research. The non-tinfoil hat approach is we do genetic engineering for research, and if we accidentally created something that is contagious and it accidentally happened to leak from a lab in Wuhan, that was an accident, and we did not mean to create a global pandemic that was extremely profitable for us. Okay, I know that doesn't sound too good. Uh, <laughs> that sounds really bad. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, there probably is a way of looking at it with a less tinfoil hat approach. But anyway, let's look at Pfizer's letter in full. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Oh, God. Okay, I'm nervous. Pfizer. Allegations have recently been made related to gain-of-function and directed evolution research at Pfizer, and the company would like to set the record straight. Nobody's going to believe them as far as they throw it. I just want to be very clear about that. No, nobody's going to believe them. But we're going to read it anyway. Uh, here, we're actually going to highlight it together if you want to follow along. In the ongoing development of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine, Pfizer has not conducted gain-of-function research or directed evolution research. Now, that's actually a funny word. Let's look that up really quick. Directed evolution research. Because I've talked about genetic engineering. I've talked about um, gain-of-function, but I have not talked about directed evolution. Directed evolution is a method used in protein engineering that mimics the process of natural selection to steer proteins towards a user-defined goal. It consists of subjecting a gene to iterative rounds of whatever and selection and amplification. It can be performed in petri dishes or in living organisms. Directed evolution is used for both protein engineering as an alternative to rationally designing modified proteins as well as for exponential. Okay, but like, I, 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 am I supposed to believe that that's good or bad? I have no freaking idea. Directed evolution, I'm, I'm having a little, I'm, I'm stalling there a little bit on why manipulating proteins is necessarily good or bad, but maybe that's something worth looking into. Anyway, we'll keep going. The gain of function one, we understand. We understand the gain of function one. Directed evolution, I'll, I'll take a pass on that one for a moment. Anyway, work, maybe somebody in the comments could, uh, could address that one. Working with collaborators, we have conducted research where the original COVID vaccine has been used to express the spike proteins from new variants of concerns. Sure, the, this work is undertaken once a new variant of concern has been identified. Okay, so they're making the claim that they're not preemptively trying to find or, or manufacture these, these variants of concern. The research provides a way for us to rapidly assess the ability of an existing vaccine to induce antibodies that neutralize a newly identified variant of concern. We then make this data available through peer-reviewed scientific journals and use it as one of the steps to determine whether the vaccine update is required. Now, do keep in mind that because of the problem of imprinting, biological imprinting, where basically your body gets used to the antibodies that were generated through the original uh, strain vaccine. So in other words, if this red COVID uh, virus is attacked by little antibodies that your body creates that are little red X's and we draw a ton of little red X's around, when a new variant comes around and you get a new vaccine that is supposed to address that variant, thanks to imprinting, your body might create a few antibodies that could fight that variant, but your body wholeheartedly creates substantially more 
antibodies against the original variant, not the new variant. That's because your body sort of has this memory of, oh, okay, we see something that looks like this, we make a, a, a antibodies towards the original variant, not the new variant. So that makes things a lot comp more complicated for vaccine development. Anyway, in addition to meet requirements for Paxlovid, Pfizer has to perform in vitro work to identify potential resistance mutations to Paxlovid. With a naturally evolving virus, it is important to routinely assess the activity of an antiviral. Most of the work is conducted using computer simulation uh, models or mutations in the main proteins of the non-infectious part of the virus. Okay, so there are mutations that they work on uh, on the viruses, but they say they do that in the non-infectious part. Well, they say most of it is conducted in, in the uh, uh, non-infectious part. So in other words, they are saying, yeah, look, we're going to have to make some mutations to try to understand these viruses. So in my opinion so far, this is kind of like, yeah, look, we, we kind of do uh, what we need to do to make these vaccines. In a limited number of cases, when a full virus does not contain any known gain-of-function mutations, such virus may be engineered to enable the assessment of antiviral activity in the cell. Yeah, I mean, this is what I was talking about. Like, yeah, of course they're doing this sort of genetic engineering. They're, they're, they're not intending to do gain-of-function. No, goodness, nobody wants to do gain-of-function. But that could happen. I mean... This is kind of just reiterating the Project Veritas piece. And, and I just want to take a, a, a moment here to say the mainstream media here is at fault for not pushing uh, for more answers from Pfizer on this here. The mainstream media should have been covering this when Project Veritas uncovered it. Wall Street Journal, USA Today, LA Times, New York Times, Wash Post, Wash Times, all of them. This should be covered. Uh, and again, even if it's saying like, look, yeah, that's the stuff they do. They don't mean to do gain of function research, but it could happen on, uh, you know, as a, as a byproduct of the research they do. Okay. That's not illegal, but, but, uh, you know, at least cover it and let people know what's actually happening. And at least Pfizer is now basically talking about that. And that's pretty much it. And then they link, well, they actually have, they link to some side effects about some of the stuff they do. And you get a bunch of disclosures. You know, it doesn't look like they actually address the, uh, the individual, whether or not he works at Pfizer. So I think it's safe to assume he probably does. And yeah, they probably, the allegations are probably true. Uh, about uh, about genetic engineering, but then again, we we already suspected that, like we already knew that. So I don't know that it's necessarily a terrible thing, but uh, it's um, it doesn't look good because again, it's um, nobody nobody wants to believe, uh, even though well, even though it is believed, nobody wants to feel like viruses are potentially being engineered that are worse than what exists in nature for the potential profit of a company, right? That's terrible. That sounds terrible and scary. And it kind of is. And I think it deserves more light, not less. So look, I, I, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. But my belief is 
the best like the best way uh, to resolve problems in the scientific community is more transparency. Biggest fan of that. More transparency, more research, more understanding, more sunlight, not less. And so the beef that I have with everything uh, around the uh, this Pfizer outburst is really just beef with mainstream media and that it wasn't covered, that it was purposefully censored. All right, what else we got? Yeah, Silo, I would love for you to share your insights. If you could do so in Discord, that would be greatly appreciated. Just go to metkevin.com slash chat and then tag me at meetkevin. Hey, Kevin, looking for my second property. I have fully rented. Uh, I have the first fully rented. Anyways. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be patient. You know, have your pre-approval letter. Be ready. I would be quite patient about it. And uh, I would be I, I'd be looking for fixer-uppers in, 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 you know, the best parts of your town. Thank you so much for being a new member here. I'm Doug. All right. Let's see what else is going on here. Uh, but yeah, when it comes to looking for real estate, I think the biggest thing is start working with realtors in your area. Start going looking at homes. Best thing you can do. Become a local expert. Expert. Goldman Sachs, all economies except the United Kingdom are now looking to potentially avoid a recession. That's interesting. Sunday morning, things move a little bit slower Sunday morning, so hopefully you're enjoying your morning and have some coffee together. Someone on Reddit says, I found two concrete safes buried in my backyard. Can't wait to see what treasures are hiding. Hey, post your address. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Ooh, will Jerome Powell talk about the debt limit? Uh, well, potentially, because that could lead the Federal Reserve to have to step in as a buyer of last resort for bonds if nobody else buys them. But then again, we've got so many uh, pension funds ready to buy. Mm -hmm. Have economists misunderstood inflation? Ooh. Government debt is at the core of rising prices, argues a new important book. Imagine it's late 2024. Inflation around the rich world has fallen from its peak but stayed stubbornly high. This could be interesting. What what if nobody understands inflation still yet, right? That would, that would also be uh, kind of scary <laughs> because that kind of means we're driving blind. I think uh, the hope is that we go back to the great moderation. Inflation's around 4%, well above levels at which most... Are, central banks are comfortable. The energy transition and rising state spending owing to an aging population add to fiscal... Okay, whatever. Rising taxes is politically... For, okay, fine. In a wonkish theory laid out in glorious detail in a new book, Fiscal Theory of Price Level, the book builds a theory of inflation as ambitious as proposed by John Maynard Keynes. Mr. Cochrane, 
whose own work is, has subjected the span of four decades, spends 600 pages reworking the math of past economic policies to incorporate, incorporate fiscal theory while explaining past as inflationary episodes. At the heart of the theory is the idea that government debt can be valued like a firm's equity based on returns to its owner's pockets. The price level will adjust and therefore drive inflation or deflation to ensure that the real value of debt remains equal uh, as a equal part of the sum of the government's future budget surplus is appropriately discounted. Thus, the true driver of inflation is government debt, not monetary policy. Under this theory, money is valuable because it can be used to pay tax and generate surpluses. The setup is not all that different from the gold standard, except it is a tax rather than gold that backs money. Oh, that's interesting. Taxes backing money rather than gold. Right, because in theory, our money is backed by nothing other than people paying taxes, right? The author is careful to note that the adjustment of price level is not instantaneous. People can become poor judges of a government's credibility when it comes to paying off debts. Just like stocks, prices are able to deviate from fundamentals, yet in the long run they adjust. A government that hands out money will eventually run out of surpluses and will not in avoid inflation forever. History appears to offer support. Explaining the inflation of the post-First -world, World Era of Europe. In France, heavy debt interest payments led to an average 20% inflation uh, rate over seven years. In Germany, things were worse. The public lost faith in the ability of the state to pay off its debt without its inflation. Soon, hyperinflation kicked in. The author brings fiscal theory to bear in America's inflation in the 70s to 80s. Prices rised 12%, and the Federal Reserve lifted inflation rates to drop inflation to 5% by 77. Yet the author points out that as inflation shot up again, more than by 14% in the 1980s, in part because America, oh, oh, they're making the argument here that the reason inflation shot back up was not because the Fed reduced rates, but rather because America fa failed to tax properly and get its fiscal house in order. Remember, we had just gotten off a lot of price uh, uh, cap standards in the early 70s and left the gold standard. So there was a lack of trust in the U.S. government that they could ever actually bring inflation down. And this led to high inflation expectations, which led to potentially the next wave of inflation. A very Michael Burry argument of what's potentially to come going forward now. Fiscal and regulatory reforms that raised expectations of future surpluses along with another dose of monetary medicine were needed to vanquish inflation. How is the fiscal theory faring today? For a decade after the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2009, prices stayed stubbornly low despite a ballooning supply of money and rates at zero. This is basically arguing that, see, inflation isn't created by a monetary policy. Well, this is totally in contrast to what uh, somebody like John Maynard Keynes would suggest, or Milton Freeman, that inflation is purely a monetary beast. This author instead argues that fiscal theory can explain both the period of low inflation and the return to rapidly high inflation after the pandemic. Inflation was meager in the, 2020, uh, in the 2010s, because politicians promised to get their books in order, and low interest rates meant consumers and bondholders were willing to wait. Yet, during the pandemic, governments took a different approach. They dropped enormous checks into consumer pockets. The Fed purchased government debt immediately after issuance. There was little talk about sustainability. 
Instead, we had helicopter drops of money, and therefore, we had big inflation. And that fiscal theory's flaw of the way it explains nearly any series of historical events in an unfalsifiable manner. This is a little complicated. The story is perhaps too convenient, and perhaps the author admits that the fiscal theory flaw offers pretty much every example. Okay, so in other words, they're saying here, if you apply the fiscal theory to inflation, it pretty much explains every time we've ever had inflation in the past. And even though there are other inflation theories, the other ones have problems. But right now, it's really hard to prove the fiscal theory wrong. And in other words, I'm going to take this a step further. If fiscal theory is true in regards to inflation, then as long as we have limited fiscal spending with gridlock in Congress like we have now and no return to stimmy checks, inflation could probably fall quite a bit solely from the fiscal point of view, the fiscal theory point of view. Fast forward once again to the late 2020-2024 era. Imagine this time inflation has fallen to 2%. Interest rates are slowly coming down. Central banks are running a victory lap. What about fiscal theory? Its supporters might take a victory lap too, just as they would have if inflation remained high. <laughs> interesting. That's an interesting argument. That basically inflation is solely driven by the government printing or the government handing out money, not printing, because the Fed does that, but handing out money. And as long as we're focused on the debt ceiling, keeping the debt in control, hey, rates are low, we could just pay our debts, but we need to potentially tax and spend less, tax more, spend less, inflation will go down. That's a really interesting theory. Haven't actually heard of that theory before, but I like it. That's a good one. I really like that one. All right. Uh, fiscal theory, we'll call that. All right. So, <laughs> if you ever go into commercial real estate, maybe we could talk about my startup. We, we talk about improving ventilation systems for lower utility bills. Ooh. That is an Economist article, if you wanted to look at it. The Economist article is, Have Economists Misunderstood Inflation? That was a good one. I like that piece. Let's see what, what the comments are saying about that. Oh. People just trying to sum it up. These are stupid comments. All right, what else do we have here? Cards in Dubai distributing. Oh my gosh. The sex trade apparently is pretty active in Dubai. Okay, what else? Is it realistic for a com consumer social startup to hit a $100 million valuation in six months? Who cares? There's so many startups that, like, in, in, in solely in, in uh, you know, trying to redo how consumers spend money or whatever that, that are very, very, very risky. This is why I like my startup of real estate. It seems very low risk. I don't, I don't like risk. So what else do we have? Hmm. Well, I think we have run out of things to talk about, <laughs> but that's okay. Again, it's Sunday morning. I hope everybody enjoys their Sunday. What is this? NFA question. At what tax percent do you draw the line between Roth and traditional contributions? I mean, I, I think if you can, 
max out your Roth every year, but don't let that delay you from buying real estate. That's the biggest problem I have. Uh, and then I would also max out my 401. I, I like them. I think the systems are great. The only other explanation I would give to potentially not using these, although you could do it within the wrapper of these accounts, which is probably a 4D chess move, but I'm a big fan of um, honestly actively managed ETFs. I'm a little biased because obviously I manage an actively managed ETF. Might be a little redundant there. But uh, the tax benefits are just insane when, when you have longer term runs, uh, where where in the longer term, if you have something that, that really runs hot, uh, you could rebalance without passing on taxes to the uh, individual shareholders, potentially, uh, depending on how it's structured and the timing of that. It's pretty incredible. Pretty incredible tax benefits in an ETF. Yeah, I'm coming back to Utah soon. Utah is great. 10% match? You should milk that. You should milk the match. Hmm. Elon Musk reaffirms offer to eat Happy Meal on TV if McDonald's accepts Dogecoin. I'm sure they would love to, but I bet you they can't figure it out. Angela, welcome aboard. Thank you for becoming a member. Do you pay off a HELOC early? I like paying off HELOCs early because then they let you use the money again when you need it. You get disciplined about paying off the HELOC, and then when you need it, you can toss the money out or, you know, deploy capital. It's great. It's nice to be able to write a big check from a credit line rather than having cash sit around. Usually people spend cash that they have sitting around. Real estate startup name, househack.com, baby. Oh, we got to talk about househack. Maybe we can go through. Oh, yeah, I guess we can go through financials. Oh, all right. I'll pull up the financials. We'll go. We'll do a househack review. You ready for that? I think that's a good idea. I'm going to do a househack review. Househack. All right. Take a second to pull these docs up. And let's see what we got. I want to get a balance sheet and income statement would be great. So some of the most important documents. Okay, income statement. Okay. All right, we got the income statement. Through January 24th. And then I just need a balance sheet. Okay, now I have a balance sheet. All right, now we have fundamentals for Halsack. Hold on, let me take another sip of coffee and then we'll get into this. Now it's time to talk about my real estate startup, Househack. In this video, we are going to go through the fundamentals, including the balance sheet. How much money does Househack have? Where is the money? We're gonna talk about the income statement. 
What kind of income do we have and what kind of expenses have been billed to house hack through January 24th? How much of Meet Kevin's personal private jet is being paid for by house hack investors? And what kind of potential benefits do house hack investors get from Kevin flying around in a private jet? And why is Kevin asking to potentially raise more money in the future when he has a private jet and investor money? How are we going to reconcile all of that? Well, we're going to do that by being transparent about financials. I think transparency is incredibly important. And the first thing that we have to be extremely transparent about is we did not raise as much money as we hoped. Uh, we actually, I mean, in, during the, the disaster that happened, we actually got more commitments than we could have ever dreamed of getting during the craziness of the market last, uh, uh, like September, October. Uh, we got $27 million in commitments, which was really phenomenal. We, that blew away our expectations, but we did not get as much follow through as we hoped in that because people complained that their money went down in the markets. And so what we have is about $23.3 million uh, in, uh, in assets. Uh, most of that sits in LPL. So I'll show that on screen now. This is the house hack balance sheet as of January 24th. So remember, 20, like here's, here's how fundraising works. So when you do fundraising, you have uh, people commit money and they say, look, I am going to commit, I don't know, $100,000, right? And so we got $27 million of commitments and we got follow through of that of about 23093, which is actually not bad. So this is a substantially more money than we thought we were going to raise, which is great, but it is like the follow through we were hoping that ratio would have been higher. So 23 divided by 27, it's actually not bad for, for uh, private equity. That's uh, over an 85% fill rate. So 85% came through, which is great. A lot of venture capital these days is sitting at uh, somewhere around 20% coming through. So in other words, if you got 100 mil in commitments, you might only get 20 mil. That's like a lot of venture capital, right? And the, the beauty about how we raised money for House Hack is guess how much money we spent to raise $23 million in terms of advertising for investors? Zero. Zero. We spent zero money advertising for investors because we used YouTube. That is freaking insane. It is insane that in a hellish bear market and recession, we were able to raise $23 million in, in, in actual money uh, with, with zero fees from like platforms that wanted to take fees. Uh, there are a lot of platforms out there, like people are like, oh, why don't you list on like Start Engine or what? And this is not to poop on Start Engine. Uh, you know, I'm sure Start Engine is great for people who don't have a YouTube channel, but they take a lot of money in fees and, and I don't wanna pay any fees. So I think we did really, really well here. Soon, uh, in April, uh, and, and you can invest if you're an accredited investor now, you go to healthsack.com. Actually, you, if, you, if you sign up before the end of the month here, January 31st, you still get more warrants than anybody who would in April. Uh, I think you get like 20 or 30% in warrants, which is really great. It's sort of like a free stock option almost 
it's not the best explanation, but just read the prospectus on howsack.com and you'll learn more. That's also where you can go to invest. But anyway, in April, we plan to do a reggae. My goal is to double what we've raised with the reggae. So my goal is to go from about 23 mil to hopefully about 46 mil. Uh, this would be, this is the goal. I would say 40, like uh, under 40 is not ideal, but we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, I would say that uh, ideally we're probably looking at, uh, or, or like best case scenario is like 50 plus, right? 50 plus, that would be the best case scenario for the right game. And the reason for this is we have a strategy that we're going to be revealing when the reggae comes out that potentially lets us print cash flow a lot faster than we thought. Now, knock on wood, I can't guarantee that, but we've come up with a way that we can basically milk the crap out of these wedge deals and make house hack a lot of money. And uh, we, we think it's an incredibly low risk, hard work, but low risk strategy. And we can't wait to reveal the details of that when we get closer to our reggae filing and it gets the uh, uh, stamp of, uh, or, or sort of the green light to raise money, should I say, from uh, the SEC. So all of, uh, all of our prospectus and everything for the reggae filing will be going through the SEC over the next few months. A non-accredited, or sorry, an accredited round is a 506D round, which does not actually go through uh, SEC review. And the next round will uh, be going through SEC review. And that's how you unlock basically the non-accredited pool, right? So uh, that's going to be really, really cool. And I expect that in April, uh, hopefully sooner, but I think realistic is April. So anyway, House Axe Financials, we have a checking account, $538,000 in it, a wire in account. We just got a wire of 130,000 bucks. So usually the wire money gets moved from the wire in account to the... Uh, checking account uh, on, a, on a regular basis. LPL, these are our bonds. This is where we have $21.5 million in treasury bonds. Those are paying us good dollars. Now, people wonder, they're like, Kevin, is that going to be on the income statement? No. And people are like, wait, so are you taking all of the interest money? No, that's not how bonds work. We are making roughly on $21.5 million, roughly a yield of about 4.25% net of any fees, roughly. That works out to an annual interest yield of about $913,000. That means those bonds are basically generating about $76,000 per month in, 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 in income. And so some folks are like, Kevin, well, where does that money go? They come when the bonds mature. That's very important for people to know because bonds, the way the treasury bond market works is you don't get a monthly or weekly check from treasuries. You buy bonds at a discount. So you buy, uh, in this case, if if these were all 12-month bonds, which are not, they're, they're a ladder portfolio. But if we bought... Uh, 21.5 of bonds, we would have actually had bonds that are worth uh, $22.4 million. That's how bonds work. So you buy $22.4 million worth of bonds at a discount at 21.5. That's how the bond market works. So in other words, you spend 21.5 
to buy bonds that are worth 22.4. And so once those bonds mature, we get a bucket of cash, which is probably those maturities are going to happen roughly around when we expect to buy real estate, which is perfect. So in other words, we get a bunch of free money for the company for house hack investors. House hack gets this benefit, not Kevin, okay? Be very clear about that. I know there's cynical people and curious people. So I just try to be as transparent as possible. I think this is the easiest way to do it. So uh, LPL brokerage account. Uh, LPL brokerage account is, uh, again, that's the, um, those are the treasuries. Uh, stock subscription receivable. That is a personal guarantee that uh, I am contributing at least another $925,000. And that's a personal guarantee that I've made. So like I've signed a debt instrument that I'm contributing at least another $925,000 in addition to what I've already contributed. And uh, I expect in the long term, my total contributions to these early rounds will probably, before the rounds close, probably be somewhere between two to $5 million. I'm probably going to get that to closer to five, but it, it depends what, what the market does and, and what, what, uh, what situations are. So that's dependent. Then we've got our wedge finder, uh, which is wholly owned, wholly owned as an asset uh, by Halsack of about 269,000 bucks. Uh, what do we have over here? Uh, these are, that's money owed to the Pathrath Org. Uh, I've got to look at the, how exactly some of this is balanced out. But there are basically some some back and forth uh, of, of nominal amounts of, of a few hundred thousand dollars. I know that doesn't sound like a nominal. But basically, uh, we have everybody who is employed, like Househack has zero employees. And so that's where some of this might look a little tricky, but it's, it's, these are nominal numbers anyway. But basically here's the employee structure right now. Househack has zero employees, zero dollars of employees. And all of the employees, which there are a lot, there's the construction team of four, uh, and these are going to be our property management team in the future. All of them are employed by me. Uh, which is the Pathrath Org. That's my personal company, right? So we've got a construction team. We've got uh, two uh, two contract CPAs, which are really good. We've got uh, contract bookkeeping, uh, bookkeeping. We've got uh, uh, four staff on top of that. And I'll say potentially four to five staff on top of that, Rough, roughly four to five staff on top of that. So in other words, we have four plus two, six, 10, 10 to 11 staff, basically. All of that staff is being paid for by Kevin Paffrath. Kevin Paffrath is paying a boatload of payroll this year. And what we plan to do is as House Hacks starts, well, first of all, we're going to, uh, the Paffrath org is going to bill some of our CPA expenses and investor relations expenses, obviously, to house hack. Some of that has already been billed. Some of it still gets billed. The rest of the payrolls are on me. And that's because they're mostly working for things for Kevin right now. And as time goes on, as we go forward, I'm able to take employees who are really good at already working with me and my team and slowly move them to the house hack payroll as they transition to solely working for house hack. Now, the beautiful thing about that is how normally businesses operate is normally you would pick people up off, like you would hire people cold, right? And that's dangerous. So like a usual startup hires new people who aren't used to working with a boss. 
That's a that's the usual way. And there's a risk in that because what if they're bad employees, right? The lower risk factor for house hack, which is awesome, is that Kevin already has amazing people. It's basically a free asset for house hack that we could take amazing people. I can spell it right here on screen. We could take amazing people and slowly shift them over. So eventually, as we're actually buying real estate and managing real estate and fixing up real estate, that's where we start seeing the expenses move up uh, for, for payrolls. But right now, the beautiful thing is house hack is cash flowing substantially because of the value of those treasuries going up. So this is the full balance sheet here. And if we now go to the income statement, you could see that here. We have wire fee income of about $5,200. We don't show income here because there is no income for the company. So we've got wire fee income of 5,200 bucks. Although we have had bank service charges of somewhere around 6,900 bucks. We've had some startup incorporation costs of about 220K, some nominal uh, audit fees, computer and internet expenses about four grand, startup incorporation costs 220 grand. So really we've spent about $226,000 and that's it. You'll notice there are no travel fees. There's no plane fees. Uh, there's no plane asset. There's no plane ownership. There's no plane billing, right? There's none of that. There's a simple reason for that. Kevin Pafrath and, and Lauren, we can't forget about Lauren and Lauren, <laughs> we write that in, and Lauren have personally taken liability for the plane. And Kevin pays for the plane. And the reason for that is I personally see the plane as a very, very big uh, tool for making sure that I can be where I need to be myself to make sure I can operate this startup as efficiently as possible and make sure that I can create the teams I need to and basically build my startup in different areas. And so YouTube's paying for the plane, which is great. And I expect it to stay that way for as long as possible. And I take no salary from Housing. So the beautiful thing is we have some really cool things going on at this startup because we have a lot of basically what I call free, I call them risk mitigators, right? Uh, which generally startups don't have. So the risk mitigators that Househack has is first of all, it's in the real estate business, which I personally deem to be a lower risk business. It also has the asset of already solid employees. It also has the asset of Kevin's expenses being covered by YouTube. It also has the asset of free marketing via YouTube, which leads to lower expenses for house hack. It also has the asset of having bought bonds at, at probably, at, at probably peak year yields at likely peak yields. This is great. It also has the asset of Kevin, Kevin buying real estate in uh, a wedge deal format that has been extremely successful in the past. Uh, been successful. There we go. Uh, and it has the, the proprietary uh, AI that we have. If I can spell it right. There we go. Uh, AI that we have on uh, finding wedge deals in broad markets, right? So what I think is so incredible 
is they're they're unfortunately they're I mean they're always going to be haters and they're always going to be people who are critical of of businesses that that you operate, uh, and that's fine. Like I'm 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 totally fine with people having commentary and critique, but oftentimes commentary and critique can go to this this state of just untruths and lies. Uh, and I think the easiest way to combat that is just being completely transparent. And uh, the complete transparent uh, method, I think, is just put sheets up. And eventually, we can show uh, the SEC's reports on, on all of our sheets as well, which will be really cool. And then we have, uh, and our financials have been audited as well, which is fantastic. They go through literally every single expense. And they provide a statement of opinion going, it is of our opinion that these financials are accurate. And it's, uh, who was it? DB, DB McKinnon was our auditor. So huge auditing firm, right? These are all big deals. These are all a big deal. And then all of it goes to the SEC. So it's, it's really, really exciting. Uh, it's, an, it's a process that I'm very excited about. And uh, I think investors should be as well. Because I think we're, like my, my goal with HouseHack is, my, like Kevin's goal is to make house hack so ridiculously, I can't even spell it right now, ridiculously successful. Uh, and this is not a guarantee, right? And I'm gonna say no guarantees, obviously. Uh, I, you know, I don't wanna get sued here by the, or like in trouble. But my goal is to make house hack so ridiculously successful that in the future, if I want to build a rocket ship company, okay, I'm just making this up, okay? But if I wanna build a rocket ship company, other people will want to invest with me uh, because I've previously uh, done well, right? That's, that's my goal. So uh, that's my vision. And I just wanna be as transparent as possible about the whole process. Like, it, it's not gonna be easy. It's gonna take a lot of work. And people are like, well, well why, 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 you know, why buy a jet? You just want a luxury lifestyle. But people who say that don't understand who, like, what, what I'm about. I work like crazy. And all I do is work more. I go to sleep and I dream about work. I wake up at 3.30 in the morning to work hard and provide value on YouTube. Then I go team build. Then I go fly around and try to be the best expert and asset that I can basically to house hack for free. Not charging a salary. The plane isn't being built to house hack. House hack's getting all these assets for free. They're risk mitigators. It's insane. Now, that might change at some point in the future. Like... It, yeah, it, who knows? Uh, yeah, and and the reason, for example, something like what if what if, for example, every investment that Kevin has personally made loses all of its money, and uh, and and Kevin's income goes to zero, everybody stops watching Kevin. Yeah, there are risks, you know, and and so it is a startup, right? So it's always worth noting there are risks. Uh, you know, what if what if the wedge deal model doesn't work? I mean. <laughs> I don't see that not happening. I, I don't see that failing, but of course there are risks. And everybody who in, would invest in house hack needs to be a big boy and put on, or big girl and put on their big boy and big girl pants and realize there are a lot of risk mitigators, but there are risks. You know, I'm not I'm not ever going to say that there uh, a, a, a real a, any kind of startup investment is is risk free. It's absolutely not. But uh, I I could not be more excited about our path, especially what we've developed in the last few weeks in terms of, of our course for what we're uh, launching for the Reg A, in other words, our, our path forward uh, and our plans forward. It's going to be really, really exciting. And uh, I'll give you a spoiler alert. The spoiler alert is we expect the cash flow that we're going to be able to generate at House Hack 
and the way we're going to be able to mitigate our OPEX is going to be remarkable. Uh, we, we think there are ways uh, to substantially prevent uh, the need to raise future money for HouseHack while potentially exponentially expanding cash flow uh, and, and, and creating something that hasn't been created before. Again, no guarantees, but we'll, we'll provide the full roadmap. And I think a lot of people are going to go, oh, damn, <laughs> like that does make sense. The model has been done before in the solar industry. It has not been done before in the real estate industry. So the model exists and it's really, really, really lucrative. So this is why I'm so excited. Um, but anyway. That uh, is uh, a breakdown. Right now, the minimum for an investment into house hack is 25000 You have to be an accredited investor. You can become an accredited investor by going to househack.investready.com or just go to househack.com to learn more. You get your accredited letter, you upload it, you can invest. When the Reg A comes out, you will not have to uh, meet the rules of being an accredited investor, uh, which is generally $250,000 income. Uh, as an individual, I believe it's 300k as a couple, or you can qualify on the basis of net worth, which is a little more complicated. For uh, non-accredited investors, we uh, we would expect that uh, the minimum investment's probably going to be somewhere around 10 to 15 thousand dollars. I haven't precisely determined that yet, and we cannot accept Bitcoin or Ethereum, sadly. Uh, someone of you was asking that here. Unfortunately, the SEC uh, is not a big fan of funds taking money in Bitcoin or Ethereum. So that's, uh, that's, that's not something that's going to be possible for the time being. Uh, if other people have questions, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to open up the chat here to anyone. So if you have questions, feel free to ask. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just be very clear. Very, very exciting. Uh, Mr. Futt says... No diluting investors over and over. Great plan. I, I mean, I think that's necessary because, again, what's Kevin's goal? It's Kevin wants to make it clear to to the people who are taking that leap of faith in Kevin that Kevin's doing the right thing for the investors. <laughs> like, that's always so important. Do you think there's a ceiling on wedge deal, a point where it becomes difficult to scale? No. That's honestly what's so exciting, too. In 10 years, we could be doing this internationally. The The... The potential here is unlimited. There's, there, it is so unlimited at this point. It is absolutely ridiculous. So ridiculous. Any issues with investing from Canada? No. If you're an accredited investor, you can invest in Canada. You can invest from whatever country you want. I don't care. Your money's green. Doesn't matter to me. Will Halsack be investing in Dallas? Maybe. Will I be able to invest from Saudi Arabia? Of course. Yeah, you can invest internationally. You can absolutely invest internationally. Uh, as long as you meet the U.S. accredited rules, you could do it now. The benefit of you investing now is you get more, basically, call options. They're not really call options. It's a little bit more complicated. Just go to houseact.com. The valuation's one-to-one, -one, so it's whatever we, we raise is the valuation. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to... I want to remember what our... Um, how, what the warrants were. I, th I want to say it's... Yeah, fund before January 31st to receive 20% free bonus warrants. But if you're a course member, you'll get 30% free bonus warrants. That'll be at zero by March 31st, unless you're a course member, then at least you get 10%. So, okay, looks like there's a lot of Q&A on this. 
You cannot get exposure to house hack through an ETF, unfortunately, because ETFs can only invest in public companies and house hack is not public. Mm, uh, let's see here. I wish I could invest in house hack. I'll be supporting from afar. Well, I appreciate that. While I learned from the courses that I purchased. Well, thank you for, for that. That's awesome. Dang, when the reggae minimum was 5,000, I was in. If it's 10K, I gotta be out. It might be 5K. So it just depends. TBD. I have no idea what your $25,000 will turn into. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I hope a lot of money, but I can't guarantee that. I see your shout outs here on South Carolina. That's awesome. Warrants for reggae investors. Probably the only warrants for reggae investors would be 10% if you're a course member. Which is better than nothing. A lot of people, a lot of our investors, by the way, right now are course members. Like I said, and it's either because of the warrants or because they, they just love the course. I don't know. Uh, but um, for accredited, okay, you're going to think I'm crazy saying this. I promise you I did not make this number up. But I'll tell you exactly how many investors we have. Uh, and then you could sort of divide the average investment. But this is insane. I'm going to put this number on screen, okay? I I promise you I'm not making this number up. My CPA told me this and I almost started dying laughing. This is how many investors, accredited investors we have right now. The, the number's on screen. Which if you divide about 23 million by that number, which is 420, you get to an average investment per investor of $54,761 per average. Can't make it up. It's pretty funny. We actually, we were at 423, but three people couldn't, uh, they, they sent money, but they ended up not being accredited. So we had to send their money back. It was like $150,000. It might've been 160. It was like 160, something we had to pay back. Uh, and that was, um, that brought us to 420. <laughs> Imagine if the average investment was 69K. <laughs> you know, y'all got to pump it up, man. <laughs> uh, Goldman Sachs just released a, a list of the top four cities that will fall the most. Austin, San Diego, and Phoenix. Yes, those are on my radar. El Paso in the house. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Good, yeah, good commentary here. You should come visit homes from course members that you reviewed in escrow over the year. That would be so, that would be really cool. When could investors expect to see a return? Yeah, so potentially sooner than we expected. So originally, and this is, I can't guarantee this, right? But originally we said that we would not offer any kind of return until we IPO. With our new model, we might be able to start paying out dividends substantially faster than we expected. Uh, if, if our cash cow turns out to be the cash cow we expect, probably we'll pay out dividends if it works. So I want to be very clear. If our vision works, which is not a guarantee, I am not guaranteeing you any money. I'm guaranteeing you nothing. Please don't sue me in the future saying I promised you the moon. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm making this very clear. I'm very optimistic, but if our plan works well, we will probably pay what could be substantial dividends. Uh, or let me rephrase that. We may pay 
what could be substantial dividends, but no guarantees. So, so in other words, we would be shifting away from the idea of you not seeing any return until the IPO, uh, which I think is another good for investors. It's very different from uh, like Cardone's pure syndicate model. Uh, I, I think Cardone's syndicate model is very nice for Grant Cardone. <laughs> very nice for Grant Cardone. Um, but uh, hey, you know what? Don't hate the, the, the player, right? The, the syndicate model is what it is, and, and people can read the prospectus and know what they're getting into, and, and, and people should. But um, I think the fees are a little excessive on, on some of the fees uh, on, on the syndicate model. Uh, and look, I have no qualms with Cardone. People always like, oh, you know, first you bagged on Cardone, and, and now you don't. It's like, no, I, I'm still upset that Cardone for years has told people don't buy a single family home. I think that was criminal. I think it was criminal to tell people, obviously it wasn't, okay? I'm, I'm just saying that. And I'm, this is not me trying to bag on my competition. I actually think he's he's changed his opinion, right? And so I give him credit where credit is due. I think Cardone has changed his position and now he tells people it's equated by single family homes. But my original qualm was with him was he said, you can't make money on single family homes. And I'm like, you're nuts. You can make a lot of money on single family homes. And anybody who didn't buy a single family home listening to Cardone between 2010 and 2021 lost a lot of money not investing in single family real estate. You know, and, and if now, I don't know, I don't watch him, but if he's changed his opinion and to say that, hey, it's okay for you to buy a single family home, then good. Uh, IPO time frame. Um, hopefully six to eight years or with, I, I really, my goal is to do so before the end of the decade. Oh my God. It's not anything near open door. Open door is flipping homes uh, with high selling fees and high market risk. We would be very, very far away from that. Would you start a house hack app to compete with Redfin and Zillow? Unlikely, because I don't think there's a lot of money in doing uh, website listings. There are a lot of companies that do that and they make no money in that. I wanna, listen, my goal with house hack is to make money for everyone. I want I want to make lots of money and I want my investors to make lots of money. It's that simple. <laughs> like, it's all driven by dollars. <laughs> if I do well, you do well. I, I expect to ever only get paid in, in stock uh, with massive lockups after IPO uh, and, uh, and, and and obviously a return on the stock that I invested alongside you at the same valuation. So, you know, whether I invest a million or two million or five million dollars, whatever it is, it will be invested at the same valuation as you. And I, I think that's that's very fair. Uh, it's, that's also very rare. Will Househack rent the jet from Kevin's media company? I don't expect so. Uh, it's possible if that becomes uh, uh, if if that becomes uh, reasonable ever. It's very difficult to say that's anywhere close to reasonable now. So I don't expect anywhere near the near future. We you know it, and if ever it would have to be billed at such extremely low rates that the media company would still be eating the bulk of the cost, right? Like. It's very reasonable to say, hey, if you have nine people on a plane who are actually working in real estate and actually need to be somewhere, that you could bill the equivalent of commercial tickets and, and hotel fees. But those would be very nominal to the point where it's just not even worth thinking about that. I don't expect anything like that in 2023. Uh, and I, I, I hope that never is necessary. So I don't expect that, no. 
but but uh, you know, could there be some kind of nominal reimbursements in the future? Of course, but that would be very reasonable, right? Uh, all right, hold on one second here. Why not focus on house hack at this point? Is the channel to get a? Well, sure. I mean, okay. So then people ask me like, why why still focus on YouTube? YouTube's the top of the funnel. YouTube is how we find investors. YouTube is a free benefit and perk for house hack. And it will be a future, uh, in my or it may be a future cash flow generator for for house hack. YouTube is also. Uh, what pays for my ability to fly around and actually run the company at no at, at this point at no cost to house hack, right? Why would I give away that? I, I wouldn't. <laughs> International investors can today invest in house hack. Absolutely. Absolutely. Elite Hustlers University gives a lot of step-by-steps for starting a business from scratch. I don't know that we've built it in like in like the perfect like here's your one, one step one to 10 plan, but there are videos where I go through step-by-steps for starting businesses, but there are many of them. So it's really fun. Would house hack consider buying for, for directly from builders? Potentially, yeah, but it, 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 we'll, we'll see. Mm. See, I don't care if the US dollar goes bust in my lifetime because we're gonna own assets. We're gonna own real estate. <laughs> No, we're not going to use ChatGPT to buy homes. I don't think that I would uh, take a buyout offer from ho for Househack because I want Househack to go public. That's what I like. I want to ring the bell with Househack. Can you really quickly explain how Househack differs from Open Door? Uh, well, you're going to, I mean, look, Open Door buys homes, thousands of homes, and then flips them on the market. And they suffer from massive, A, horrible purchases up front. They're not buying wedge deals. They have a very clear mission statement. Buy homes from people off market. And even if they make zero wedge on the deal, they flip it back on the market to try to make the Open Door 6% fee. But in doing so, they entertain massive market risk. What if between the time you made an offer and the time you sell, home prices are down 20% like they are in Phoenix? Well, they take the L. And that's why they potentially face massive bankruptcy risk. They have an extremely risky business model. Their business model is so risky that they actually, well, they have no intention of ever buying and holding real estate, which would diversify their risk and lower their risk. But they also are now thinking about potentially just becoming a platform for being the middle person. Oh, you know, we'll just give leads to people who want to buy them and exchange them for like a small fee. They have no idea what they're doing. I'm, I'm sorry. Open Door is so lost because they're losing so much money. All you have to do is look at their financials. And, and I could be very clear that we will do the opposite of everything Open Door is doing. <laughs> Put it that way. Yeah, that's a, at least the expectation. Uh, let's see here. Warrants, cash in on warrants will probably be, I should say maybe 2024. So we'll probably close out the Reg A 
and, and all the funding opportunities this summer. So between March, well, I should say probably between May and July. And then we'll, then we'll be removed from anybody being able to invest in HouseHack. And then we turn into an operating company. Uh, and, and then the next, uh, basically, opportunity for those call options essentially being deployed would be uh, probably 24. Okay, I've answered it like 27 times, but and I apologize. Maybe you joined late. But yes, international investors can already invest in HouseHack. I would love to replace BlackRock and Invitation Homes with HouseHack. <laughs> uh, do you need a, 20, a Series 24 on your team? Right now, we're not hiring, but in the future, we will be hiring a lot. HouseHack, I do not expect to be a REIT. HouseHack, I expect to be, a, hopefully, a very profitable operating company. Uh, HouseHack will not be a REIT. HouseHack could create REITs, kind of like Blackstone does or whatever, and, uh, and benefit from managing those REITs, right? But uh, HouseHack itself is unlikely to be a REIT. There is no ticker symbol for PP. <laughs> uh, or, or sorry, I meant to say house hack. There is no ticker symbol for house hack. Um, anyway. That is a full breakdown on everything that is going down with house hack. Hopefully that was very insightful to you. Uh, what's your vision or scale you believe you'll get to with house hack with a five to ten year outlook? I don't know. Um, we'll have to sit down and really do some projections on that. There are, uh, there are ways that it could scale substantially faster than we expect that it could. Uh, and then there are ways that, that, that scale could be limited and that's going to in part depend on the market that, that will become a lot more clear. Let me put it this way. Worst case scenario we have a lot of great wedge deals that we're up on an equity. That's sort of, that's uh, my belief of a worst case scenario. Obviously, worst case scenario is you lose all your money. That's the real worst case scenario. But sort of our bear case is we have a lot of great properties with great cash flow and substantial equity and great wedge deals. That's the, that's our bear case. Our bull case is we could take hopefully about the 50 mil that we've raised and turn it into this money printer basically where we're able to pull out, you know, $8 million out of a hat uh, once a year, then twice a year, then four times a year, then, then and, and just have this flywheel going of, of massive cash flow. So we do not have any idea what's going to happen, but the, the, that's sort of a, a bare bull case. And then that would obviously lead to dividends uh, or, or, or whatever, buybacks, whatever we want to do. I have no idea. I, I, and, and I would, if you're looking at active manage, actively managed ETFs on Weeble and you're asking why they're, they're funky in after hours, ignore them. It all gets corrected when the market opens. So there you have it. Happy Sunday morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate y'all. And uh, we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye. Is NVIDIA overpriced now? I like Nvidia. I like Nvidia. It's it's a little more expensive than um, than, uh, than than maybe like an ASML or an AMD, but I wouldn't bet against Nvidia. I like Nvidia. 
Uh, no, this is not personalized financial advice for you, okay? <laughs> anyway, goodbye. Thank you. Bye.